0: Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic.
1: If you're not yet a subscriber to The Athletic, now's the time with our best offer ever. Sign up today and you'll pay just £1 a month for the next six months, giving you unrivaled insight and analysis of everything Euro 2020 and taking you well into the new Premier League Season 2. The Athletic is the only place you can read pieces by award-winning writers like Michael Cox, Rafa Honigstein, Amy Lawrence and Daniel Taylor. And when you subscribe, you'll also get ad-free versions of all of The Athletic's podcasts from across its audio network. Head to theathletic.com slash totally and become a subscriber today for six quid until the end of the year. That's theathletic.com slash totally. for Stolen, oh, where you are, who you wish, because this unbelievable is one of those landmark football moments that don't come around too often.
2: Indeed, 2 0 over Germany. Southgate adopts traditional Italian tactics by having a striker who's immobile, but with Sterling in the pocket and with a walking cane, he turns the nation on again. Now, can he give his team a semi? Ukraine are the opponents next Saturday in Rome, or what's left of them. We look back on their gruelling clash with Sweden. Plus, we hear from Julien Laurent on what went wrong for the French. We say, here's to you, Mrs Rabiot, and we get more from the vaults in On This Day at the Euros. It's totally at the Euros, in association with Paddy Power. <laughs> yep, they sang it. It's Wednesday the 30th of June for you, listener, the day after England shuffled their way past Germany into history in the final in Rome. And we are here the evening before, still Tuesday night for us, with Adam Crafton. Hello, Adam. Hello. Hello, with Raphael Honigstein, who's just back from Wembley. Hello, James. And with Daniel Storey, whose knees have gone all trembly. Daniel.
3: Exactly right, James. Good evening.
2: Right. Good evening to you. Well, it was a day that I think for England fans was... Pretty special Tuesday. Um, others may have felt that after the mad speedball fueled antics of, of Monday, this was more of a kind of Sunday afternoon cup of tea set of fixtures, pace-wise. Anyway, England 2-0 winners over Germany. Ukraine then later that evening, after extra time, or right at the end of extra time, getting the second goal in a 2-1 victory over Sweden that puts them into a quarterfinal clash with England next Saturday in Rome. The other quarterfinals being... Earlier on Saturday, it'll be uh, Czech Republic against Denmark. And on the Friday, in St. Petersburg, Switzerland against Spain. And in Munich, Belgium against Italy. Crikey. It, it's quite an interesting picture, isn't it? One of Denmark, Czech Republic, England and Ukraine is going to be in the final. Can't argue with that, can you?
4: Interesting, <laughs> yes.
2: <laughs> also, as Mohammed Butt points out, with Germany going home, there are now more Brighton players at Euro 2020 than there are Real Madrid players.
3: Incredible. Also true, yeah. Good. Mm.
2: All right, then. Well, look, we're all saving up our really top material for our match analysis, so let's straight away get to
1: Wembley for England 2 and Germany 0. No. You're listening to the Totally Football Show, sponsored by Paddy Power and part of the Athletic Podcast Network. And now Grealish. Grealish in!
2: victory for England in a game that, to my mind, was kind of pretty poor for 70 minutes against a pretty poor Germany. Daniel, you called it, though, the most satisfying victory you could remember in your lifetime.
3: Yeah, for England, not because the game was uh, filled with quality, but because it it had a psychological element to it that is inevitable, not just because of unnecessary nostalgia, but because... England had never won a knockout match in 90 minutes at the European Championship before. And this one came laced with the type of pitfalls that England teams normally either fall into or trip themselves up into. Uh, and they didn't do that. I thought they were they were pretty nervous early on. Uh, I thought they grew into the game as if they seemed to realise that there wasn't any need to, to fear this Germany team. Um, a Germany team that did create a couple of good chances it should be said or were given a couple of good chances in one case but they grew into that game and you know we'll talk about Gareth Southgate I'm sure in a, in a little while but everything that he did in the game pretty much came off and not all of it was expected so you know he left mm. on two central midfielders who had bookings he left on Harry Kane he he brought on Grealish uh at, at, at what turned out to be pretty much the perfect time and yeah it, it all does seem to be coming up Roses for Southgate, whether by luck or judgment or a bit of both.
2: Adam, your reaction was: it's a good outcome for everyone. Southgate fundamentalists get to call it a masterclass. Grealish fanboys get to say he decided the game and must start. Everyone wins. What? What was your actual take on it, though? In between all of that,
5: um, I was just I was just saying to someone this uh, this evening, you know, sort of comparing the text messages um, that I was sending and receiving. around 70 minutes compared to um, 95 minutes Um, and you wouldn't think it was the same person sending those messages um yeah i mean i'm i'm definitely one of those people that thought you know i thought that the approach was a little bit too conservative um i you know i think we got a little bit lucky and that you know jordan Pickford made a great save muller missed a great chance i don't necessarily think england controlled it necessarily as well as it will probably be remembered um, I think Germany, you know, were, were also really poor on the day, but, you know, it's England in the quarterfinals and all nuance, therefore, goes out of the window and you sound very, very curmudgeonly um, if you, if you know, if you criticise England in these conditions. Um, I think what was impressive about England was that they did, you know, so it's still quite a young team. Um, I know they were helped by, you know, obviously Maguire coming back in, who's got more experience, but I think they they dealt with the size of the occasion quite well. They didn't seem to become overruled and they didn't panic. I think that was one of the bigger things as well. As that game drifted in the second half and, you know, by 70 minutes, you were thinking, I've seen the second half before and it drifts and it drifts. And then, you know, it either goes into extra time and penalties and you lose it or Germany just come up with the goal. And and they, they found that little bit of inspiration and his subs worked out. And as Daniel says, you know, if Declan Rice picks up a second yellow card, then you're saying, why has he left him on? For that long, so yeah, he certainly got away with certain things, but you know there was also a level of organisation that should be admired, um, even if you know the balance maybe isn't quite there yet from an attacking point of view.
2: Mm. I think probably everyone was delighted above all for Gareth Southgate, one of the nicest guys mm. in football. Rafa, you were actually there. Uh, what did you make of the afternoon? First of all, the atmosphere, and did you get much reaction to your presence from people on the way to the ground and that kind of thing?
4: N- no, none, none whatsoever. No. I mean, usually they're confusing with Guy and Balaguer, but now that he's <laughs> off off air for a while, it's not it's not even that. No, uh, got no no reaction. But then you know it's difficult with the mask and everything. So, right. Um, otherwise, I'm sure they would have been queuing up for autographs and selfies. Um, the atmosphere is great. I mean, the atmosphere was great. You could sense just that slightest amount of trepidation and anxiety, especially when Germany capped the ball really well in in the first 15 minutes. And it took the England team a long time to figure out that Germany were playing with three men in midfield in possession, with Harvard's actually not playing up front, but playing as a midfielder. But once they wised up to to that, then there was very little from, from Germany. It was difficult to understand or to evaluate who was controlling who because both teams were so limited in their ambition they could both claim that their game plan was was sort of working Um, and it was very much the Spider-Man meme uh, as Mm. a football game I didn't think Germany played particularly badly it was probably one of their better performances in recent years, that in itself is perhaps quite indicative of what Germany are at the moment (laughs) They could have won the game. It was it was pretty even. They could have easily drawn it into going into extra time. And then who knows? But ultimately, the team won that had a game plan and made it stick. Uh, Germany had had an idea. It wasn't fully formed. It was sort of a compromise, as most of the things that Löw has done. Um, playing with the ball, but then playing without it. Trying to be dominant, but not too much. Not taking risks. Keeping people back. This halfway house attitude basically cost cost Germany, maybe not on the night itself, but over the whole over the whole tournament. And it was interesting with Gareth Southgate because I think, as Adam said, on minute 70, I think the knives were out. I mean, this was an England manager not taking any risks, leaving most of his best players or many of his best players on the bench, devising a formation that was even more negative than than the system he'd played before and, and seem to be taking a big risk by not taking much risk. But of course, when it works out, it's, it's beautiful. And results football that brings results has a special kind of magic to it. But if it doesn't, then you can look very, very undercooked and exposed. And I think the jury is still out on this England. Um, I can understand why Germany, as a symbol maybe, or you know, as a, as a bogey team, posed a special kind of challenge but it was the last 16 and you now have to continue with this um, system to see it through and I wonder what the reaction would be if it doesn't quite then work out if you get beaten in a semi-final or get beaten in the final will people still consider it worth it Um, a journey for all the the results or will they perhaps think that this England was somehow uh, limited in its in its ambition. It's I think it's still it's still gonna be the decisive question for, for England and this tournament.
5: I think you're absolutely right. And I think, you know, my biggest thing as that game went on was just thinking, you know, if Germany get that first goal, imagine the regrets you're going to have. You know, when you look over at that at that bench and you see the players who haven't even got onto the pitch join that game. And I was just thinking, God, imagine being Gareth Southgate and in twenty minutes, when this game's over you're always going to look back and think, this wasn't a great German team. And we had them at Wembley and we just let the occasion pass us by. And obviously it's turned out completely the opposite. History will judge it as the night of great vindication. That's the way that knockout football works and it's fantastic. Um, But I do think you're right. It's really interesting to see how Southgate uses the momentum and energy that comes from this result because you now have games, well, hopefully games, plural, against Ukraine and then Denmark or Czech Republic where, you know, I think, I don't think England can go to cancel out, certainly not Ukraine. Um, They maybe would do against Denmark, but again, probably not Czech Republic. I think, you know, you probably play with a four man defense in those games and introduce one more attacking player um, into it. You know, they have to play, I think with more creativity and we've seen, you know, we saw in, in the group stages that they do struggle to break teams down when they're allowed the ball. Um, but but it's all a question now of can they use that momentum and does that momentum kickstart them? I mean, there was a big difference, I felt, in England's confidence between nil-nil and one-nil, you know. And by mm. the last five to seven minutes, it felt like, you know, England were almost a little bit rampant um, in certain ways. So there, there was, there's a confidence that comes from it. But, you know, I just hope they can channel that to play a little bit more memorably um, on the ball.
2: Right. I mean, it was a very frustrating game for the bulk of it, but by the end, there there were certainly some massive positives that England fans can can celebrate. Not least Sterling, the the, the fellow with the tattoo of a boy looking up at Wembley, scoring again at Wembley, uh, just down the road road from his old place. Also, Luke Shaw's performance, Pickford, you've you've previously mentioned continuing his excellent tournament uh, with the, the save on Timo Werner early on, but especially that that remarkable athletic stop on 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 Kai Havertz's shot. What stood out for you, Daniel? Also, uh, Jack Grealish. Was it coincidence that everything happened after he came on the field?
3: Uh, No, but the the one thing I think of, I'm I'm trying not to be too kind of happy clappy about Southgate because it is just a quarter final. But um, well, he's not a manager who has these kind of, you know, he's not outwardly passionate. You you struggle to get inspired by him in terms of his demeanour, but he does clearly have a, a, a very firm kind of conviction and 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 faith in what he believes is the right way to do it. Because let's not escape the fact there's been a, a huge tide of negativity against England's own negativity. And some of that is completely understandable given the opposition we're playing, particularly the Scotland result and performance. And some of it he will consider as unfair because England have not conceded a goal in the tournament yet and they're the only team not to do so. Um, but the big calls he had in hindsight, he's got right. You know, three months ago, people were talking about Nick Pope instead of Jordan Pickford and Pickford wasn't good enough for England number one. They, he was criticised because there was a reticence to to leave Harry Maguire out, even though his injury looked pretty serious and it was a, there was a doubt whether he'd be fully fit within the tournament. Raheem Sterling's continually been dogged by this should he start for England. Harry Kane had a rotten group stage and there was, I think, understandably a, a kind of a, a surprise that Dominic Calvert-Lewin wasn't on the bench today. And yet... As I say, maybe it's a combination of luck and judgment. But when you're winning games, you, you probably deserve to that that to be considered as judgment more than luck. And and everything has pretty much come off, or or albeit I accept, not in a a kind of clanging, banging, all bells or whistles football that we would love England to play. But then, I don't know, England don't really have. The history of success to be able to demand that I don't think we're not at that stage Southgate's point is that you cannot skip steps on the way to becoming a successful international team and he believes this is the the most realistic way for it to happen and so far I don't think we can doubt that too much albeit as Rafa and Adam completely rightly say if England don't win their quarter final suddenly it's Southgate out again let's make no bones about that because that's how this works
5: I think as well. I mean, you know, there's not only the, the judgment side of it, but there was also this emotional tidal wave by by the end of that game. And when you saw Southgate, you know, he gave this interview to the BBC probably within fifteen minutes of the match finishing, where he talks about looking up at David Seaman um, in the stands and, and almost feeling that he's carried this guilt for years towards his, te- you know, the teammates that. You know, he maybe feels that he let down by missing a penalty at mm. Euro 96. You know, I can't, for the teammates that played with me, I can't change that, so that's always going to hurt but what's lovely is that we've given people uh, uh, no, another day to remember um, and now we've got to go and do it in Rome. That narrative of redemption is incredibly endearing and charming I and mean, you know I was watching that with a little bit of a wobbly lip um, listening to him and just feeling absolutely terrible for the text messages that I'd sent about 25 minutes before <laughs> so I, I mean I, I you know I think that was an extraordinary interview just within 15 minutes of the game finishing that you know that went out to probably 15 to eighty million people and I think you know that there is a real connection when Southgate wins that the country has with him and that will carry the mm. team a long way now
2: No he's hugely likeable Rafa do you think in 25 years time when Thomas Muller is the uh, the Mannschaft's manager he'll be Performing a similar interview about his guilt feelings about that chance <laughs> that he squandered at the end, or indeed that astonishing error which almost put kane's well Sterling, and then Kane through early on in the game in the, in the first half.
4: Yeah, it's it's, it's not possible um, that these things might come to pass. I think Müller is possibly a manager in the making. I have a slightly different take on that miss. Um, of course, he should have scored. There's no there's no debating, but. It perhaps wasn't a complete coincidence or there is perhaps an explanation for it. The explanation, it might sound a bit trite, but it feeds into, I think, the wider problem for this Germany team. In my view, Müller, or part of the reason why Müller might have missed is because he just doesn't get into these type of situations regularly. You don't see Müller running towards goals with 40 meters to go. On a counter-attack it just doesn't happen I, I've never seen him in almost 400 games at Bayern being the guy who runs from the counter-attack towards goal and then shoots I think he he almost wasn't ready for this type of situation it's just not it's not his game and I think that's Germany's problem all along they were playing a game that was never really fully their game they were trying to mitigate problems which then created other problems You had arguably the best and most important player out of position throughout the tournament in Jose Kimmich. All these tiny issues, which taken by themselves would probably not quite be enough to tilt the scales. But if you add too many of them on top of each other and then have the vagaries of international football on top of it, knockout situations where you need to take your chances, it was just probably too much for this team to deal with. And... In the end, it's perhaps not a coincidence that this Germany team, while having played reasonably well, just can't quite get it done. Not just in this game, but if you look at the last two tournaments, they've had four games without scoring a goal and seven games without a clean sheet and just two wins in between them. So that is that is not the sign of a team functioning well. And... That's the reason why I had very low expectations, no pun intended. And that's why yeah. I'm almost, I don't want to say pleasantly surprised, but I'm i am not even particularly upset because you almost feared it could be much, much worse. Germany weren't a disgrace at the Euros. They just weren't particularly good.
2: Okay. One other thing on England, unless there are other things you want to discuss, but Harry Kane, what's the position now? He scored, so everything's okay? Or... The kind of previous 80 minutes suggests that there is a fundamental issue there with putting all your eggs in his basket.
4: I was I was so close to to writing um, with 20 minutes to go, England doing really well with 10 men to hold out against Germany. And then I thought better of it. I mean, he was really a complete non-entity, but it, it doesn't matter because scoring a goal is the most important thing you can do and he was there when it mattered right at the end, so no one will remember it.
2: But if you're Gareth Southgate and you're thinking about the next game, do you think, well, that's fine, uh, I can just continue this way or, or, or what?
3: Yeah, he will play, he will start every game for which he is fit for England. Um, there's absolutely no doubt about that. And he says that fitness is not an issue. It's just, you know, it's not been clicking and he's not seen much of the ball. I did think he looked, as Adam said about the England team in general, as soon as England went 1-0 up, suddenly you seem to see him maybe because England was sitting so deep. You seem to see him dropping back and he was winning the ball and picking it up and trying to link play as if, I don't know, as if maybe he needed the confidence of of, of England scoring to go again, but he was a non-entity in the game. But that that won't make a difference to, in, to Southgate's selection. He, he reasons, and not unreasonably, um, that if if you leave Kane on the pitch long enough, he will clip long enough. He's got the instincts enough that even if he's not on form, he will create a chance. And, and let's face it, he should have scored against the Czech Republic. He had a great chance. He should have scored the first goal against Germany and he did score the second. And Southgate will consider that even for a player that is pretty lost, that will be good enough to start against Ukraine, I'm sure.
5: It is, it is baffling though. I mean, I mean, we'll talk about a player who has just not had a, a, a period like this really since he you know really broke through at Spurs there hasn't been That he's been so robotic like a machine you know the idea of him malfunctioning just when you need him most and when other players around him are actually you know Sterling's playing really well I thought Saka was good again particularly first half but then faded obviously Grealish is doing well when he comes in Um, it's, it's really mystifying I don't think there's anything in this sort of Suggestions that he's distracted by transfers and stuff like that. I just don't think he's, he's playing well um, and might be, you know, I still think he looks like he's carrying a knock of some sorts. Um, I thought the, I mean, the other really bright spot for England was Luke Shaw, um, who would get, you know, again, one of those players who for the first hour, you're looking at him and thinking, what's he waiting for? <laughs> what's he waiting, you know, is he going to go up that space down the left side? Can he get a bit more further forward? And then all of a sudden, the last twenty five minutes, he came alive and played faster and with more intensity. And and when he plays like that, um, with speed in his game, he's you know he really he really is a brilliant player. And because I i probably again spent the first hour thinking maybe Chilwell would come in for the for the next game, but you know he's absolutely nailed that place down now. And I'm pleased for him as well because you know with injuries and different managers and form at different times, there's been a lot of question marks against him. You know to the extent that. You know, I think his previous Manchester United contract went so within a year of expiring, and no, you know, United fans weren't really talking about. Oh, we really need to tie Luke Shaw down for another five years. You know, the club did it, uh, and he's absolutely proving value for it now. So delighted for him, and also Calvin Phillips again. I thought was really good.
3: I think in terms of in terms of Ukraine, there's, there's a pretty obvious switch, which is moved to back to a four three three with. Um, Mason Mount coming in for Kieran Trippier to be in the three-man midfield and then bringing Grealish for Saka who I thought started really well but I I just think the difference when Grealish came on now particularly in Kane means that uh, shifting Sterling over to the right probably makes sense and playing Walker and Sterling down that right-hand side with Mount in midfield it just feels that I think this was a one-game experiment or a one-game necessity with the back three rather than a, a permanent shift for this tournament.
5: Raph, just with just on Germany, who do you see sort of Flick building his team around? Which of, you know, there's obviously a lot of really talented young players, particularly in the forward positions, is who do you get the sense that he, he will build around?
4: It's not easy to answer. I mean, I think Joshua Kimmich and Leon Goretzka will be the midfield duo. I think Toni Kroos might have a hard time holding on to his place. Although he was one of Germany's better performers uh, at, at these Euros and I quite liked what he did against England. The big question for Flick is, can he play that Bayern system with high pressing, high line and no Lewandowski with this Germany team? Or does he have to opt for a slower build-up to make more of, of Kahawetz? I mean, Kahawetz can play on the break, but you want them on the ball a lot more. You want more of a rhythm. And if you still want Thomas Müller to stay, also you need to be much closer to the opposition box. You can't really start so deep. It's not his game. So I think he's got a lot of interesting questions to answer because you cannot simply take the Bayern blueprint and make Germany play that way. There's too many key parts missing. And of course, the age structure of the team also doesn't work in his favour. There's not going to be a Boateng around. And can Gnabry play that way? throughout this time or is it just too tiring if you play like that in the national team and for Bayern with this high pressing it's, it's really it's going to be really interesting but the one thing I think we do know is that Goretzka and, and Kimmich will run the show in the middle and that then will create a knock-on effect that uh, Tony Kroos might be might be impacted and uh, Ike Gündoğan as well Well Germany no strangers
2: to building title winning machines from the ruins of previous sides, as of course you documented in your excellent Das Reboot, Rafa. Uh, now, next up on the Totally Football Show at the Euros, oh, we'll head over to Glasgow to check in on Ukraine, victorious later on Tuesday night in their last 16 match against Sweden.
0: The Euros are here, and we'd better make the most of them because they only come around every four, uh, five years. So if your bookie isn't making you feel special, then maybe it's time to find a new one. Yep, not so much Carpe Diem as Carpadium. <laughs> if the grass is greener on the other side, come and play on it. If your bookie's not giving you the best rewards, switch. And if one leg of your four-plus-fold bet builder lets you down, get money back as a free bet on all games this Euros. Paddy Power. Pretty much only Max Free Bet £10, excludes enhanced match odds. and odds on to five on exclusive Ts and C's apply. 18 plus.
1: This is the Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Listen ad-free on the Athletic app and discover bonus content by following the Athletic UK Audio Plus on Apple Podcasts.
2: Singing in the Ukraine after Andrei Shevchenko's side having placed third in their group behind Netherlands and Austria. Managed to get past Sweden in extra time. Crikey. Have a listen to how much fun this was with Ukrainian
0: commentators.
2: (laughs) 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 Arden Dovpik with with the winner there. Uh, Daniel, you were all over this game after the thrills of of Wembley. Uh, They've taken the lead in some style, haven't they, Ukraine?
3: Yeah, a beautiful ball from Andrei Yarmolenko. Outside of his foot is a very Yarmolenko-like. Um, load of whip on it across the goal and Zinchenko got his knee above the ball enough that he could in- impact a huge amount of power, which kind of burst Robin Olsen's glove. And yeah, 1-0 Ukraine. It was a game that inevitably I watched with... England-focused eyes, and it was an incredibly draining 120 minutes. And there were bookings and injuries and stoppages galore. If, if England fans could have drawn or thought up a better last-16 tie for who we would face in the quarterfinals, this would have been it. Um, Yarmolenko mm. went off injured. Uh, Buscan had a horrible leg injury, it looked like. I suspect he'll be out. So, yeah, Ukraine are dogged, and I thought, I thought they looked really good against the Netherlands in their first game to get back into the game, but there are no, or there should be no huge, uh, the risk of sounding uber arrogant here, there should be no huge alarm bells. England know what they're facing.
2: Right. Shout out to Shaparenko for the wonderful uh, diagonal ball to Yamalenko before Zinchenko's goal. Of course, uh, Forsberg had equalised shortly after that. A lot of people uh, dubbing him the Scando Robbie Savage, a harsh but fair uh, on social media following that. He then hit the woodwork twice in the second half as Sweden came agonisingly close to uh, taking the lead. But as you say, less and less happened of a footballing nature and more and more of a footballer's falling over and, and being taken off and that kind of thing. And just when penalties were doing their looming, Zinchenko again with the cross for Artem Dovbik. How much attention were you paying at this point, Adam?
5: Well, I was sort of... I tuned in sort of properly around 60 minutes and it was... Um, There was just a lot of faffing. That's like, if there was one word to define from 60 minutes onwards, it was just faffing and faffing and subs and injuries. Obviously, some of the injuries were quite serious, so I have sympathy um, in that regard. Um, Red card, very dramatic. Um, I did enjoy that there was a a real last gasp winner because we obviously had penalty drama, and then we've had normal time, late drama, but now we've had an extra time winner as well, um, right at the death, and it was great. The celebrations were amazing. Shevchenko was charging down the touchline, and then you have the coaches sort of arguing with each other a little bit. Then there was the VAR check. Um, Not a massive fan of VAR, but I do enjoy those sort of high-pressure moments where it looks like VAR may crush an entire nation, uh, or awaken an entire nation at the same time. Um, so it was in the end. It was um, it was worth the investment um, that I made for about sixty minutes.
2: Right. Okay. Uh, well, we probably won't ask you for a, a view on Daniel's assertion that England have nothing to fear on Saturday from Ukraine.
5: No. Well, I mean, from what I saw, it didn't look like they did. I mean, most of their players were sort of giving way as the as the game um, went on. I mean, it was like walk, walking wounded by the end. Um, i think it's hard to work to really work out you know how good that the level of this ukrainian team is i mean it's sweden i think probably better suited to playing against better teams in that they're able to sit back they don't have to try and break down the opponent as much they can sort of play on the counter and set plays a little bit more whereas you know there was there was they had to provide the impetus tonight um i think they would have been stodgier opponents for england particularly you know when you see the way that scotland um, stifled England so I think it's probably the better of the two options between Sweden and Ukraine but I will not go as far as saying it's you know we're not we're not in the semi-final but I would be you know I'd think about resting one or two for the semi-final and final.
2: Really interesting all right well the quarter final lineup is then Switzerland against Spain on Friday in St. Petersburg Switzerland's first ever quarterfinals in the Euros Italy will be taking on Belgium in Munich later that evening and the winners of those two quarterfinals will be facing each other in the semi-final. Same deal for the two games on Saturday. Czech Republic against Denmark in Baku and the winner of that will be up against either England or Ukraine in the semi-final. Crikey. Beyond England, which game of of those four are you most looking forward to?
3: Well, I think, I mean, Belgium-Italy feels like a... a a semi-final in this tournament in that I think they've been two of the four best teams in the tournament so far. Um, I I do think it's, I mean, mean, there are various reasons, most of them completely valid and I agree with not to be hosting games in Baku in an international tournament at at any time. But having got through the slog of the group stage was where teams have to travel that far. To then have a quarter final there seems such a stupid misstep. I really feel for those teams who are not going to have fans being able to go two thousand miles to back that seems a, a ridiculous thing, and and I also think the atmosphere in that stadium kind of kills the games as well. So yeah, Belgium Italy is is is, is a pretty obvious standout.
2: Mm. You've been following Belgium for the Athletic, Adam.
5: Yeah, and I mean the, the big question mark for them ahead of that game is is can Eden Hazard or Kevin De Bruyne get back? And at the moment, you know they're facing a massively uphill task. To get them back for that game it, yeah it looks more likely that they'd be available for, the, for a semi-final um i think it's a, it's a fascinating test for, for for this belgian team because i think they were really pushed to their physical actually and psychological limits against portugal on sunday they were losing you know they lost a Bruiner, they lost hazard they were playing probably in the toughest environment you know very very hot night in seville they'd previously traveled uh, to Russia uh, for what was basically an away game in the group stage, then to Denmark, which was basically an away game. You know, they've got that old defence where Vermaarland was absolutely fantastic against Portugal, but you wonder, you know, can he do that twice in a week? Um, uh, uh, Axel Witzel, 32, you know, he's 32 years old, he's play, he played 90 minutes against Finland, which was his, pretty much his first appearance, I think, apart from 20 minutes against Denmark since January the 9th and now he's done 90 minutes back to back so they are really pushing themselves um, and to do it without De Bruyne and Hazard would be monumental it would also be a you know a huge tick on the CV of Roberto Martinez if he was able to mastermind that victory against Italy because I think there's a, there is a tendency with anything that Martinez does with Belgium that you know people say oh well he's got great players you know he's got Hazard and De Bruyne and Lukaku and it's always sort of in spite of him rather than because of him. I think if, if they were to be Italy without those two star names on Friday, I think people would have to start giving Martinez far more respects, I think, for the job, which he's done in Belgium and, and actually the way he's considered in Belgium reflects that as well.
2: Mm. As producer Charlie has previously pointed out, he has history. He has previous in doing that to Mancini in a cup competition. Uh FA Cup Wembley, etc. and that. Alright, not on that list of quarter finalists. A world champions, France. And no one is more surprised about that than Julien Laurence. A day after getting, in social media speak, a taube we caught up with our favourite Frenchman in morning. Jaws, Jimbo. I'm so sorry, mon ami. It's um,
6: okay. You win some, you lose some.
2: Yeah. Just give us a little, we are world champions. Yeah, just...
6: We still are world champions for another 18 months, so I would not shut up. Exactly. That's the one thing I can still, you know, hold on to, to be fair, right now. So, you see?
2: How how much did that game put you through the ringer? You know, from, say, Benzema's first goal and Pogba's magnificent strike to, you know, eventually Mbappe's penalty miss?
6: Yeah, it was incredible. I mean, I was not convinced at all by that back three to start with, and I was very Mm -hmm. sceptical. Before kickoff, when I mean we had known from the day before we we were briefed, so I had time even I had twenty four hours to think about it. Can this work? No, it can work. But but what about this? No, it still cannot work. Okay, what about that? It still cannot work. That back three cannot work. Not with Pavar and Rabio as wing backs. Not mm. not with Griezmann as a number ten. I never believed that of Griezmann as a number ten in that way. So I was very skeptical. And the first half. Mm. Went with, with the, the feeling I had and I was really, yep. really annoyed and really cross. And then the second half was so much better for the, the 25 minutes after the penalty, of course, because again, Pavard and we, we didn't have to wait for this tournament to know that Pavard was a dreadful footballer. Now we know for sure that uh, in, no one can try to debate with me that Pavard is actually a good player. But Gosh. that foul on Zuber was ridiculous. And after that, mm. the 25 minutes that France put up after the penalty miss, We're fantastic. And then I thought, okay, this is it. It's us, we're gonna play Spain uh, in the next round.
2: No, I have to say you didn't sound quite so skeptical uh, when you joined us in, in Monday's show. And you talked about what France were going to do in the rest of the tournament after the Switzerland game. And I said, yeah, but are you not a bit worried by the way Austria have done well? Or well, certainly the Czechs knocking out the Dutch. And, you know, maybe you shouldn't. You should ne comptez pas vos poulet avant qu'il ne as we say. And you said, you said, uh, well, the difference is the Netherlands don't have a good coach, unlike France. Are you still convinced about that?
6: Yeah, that's a, that's a really good point. So we recorded that Sunday night. When we, mm-hmm. when we, then we knew that there was a, a, a possibility that they would play with the three at the back. It was not completely confirmed, but they, right. they had worked on training once. So we had that. I still didn't think that he would go ahead with the back three. And certainly I didn't think that they, they would still play that bad with the back three. Uh, right. and, and I was certainly, uh, I was certainly v- very arrogant, as always, uh, in my predictions. <laughs> I, I just didn't see this one coming. I, you know, Switzerland are a good team. They have good players. Chaka played well. Zuber played really well as well. And Seferi mm. scored, took his two goals in, in a great way. But this is a game that France invited the defeat to. And like Deschamps said after the game, the only the only good thing that he said pretty much all tournament was we didn't deserve to go further. And he's right. The way we played, the way we set up, the way we were complacent at 3-1 up... We didn't deserve to go through, and they deserved it far more than us. And I think they wanted even more than us because they never gave up. Whereas we gave up at 3 1 up, we thought it was won.
2: What's the reaction been like in France among the papers and the TV?
6: I think there's still a lot of, like, did it, did this really happen? Not just to be knocked out, because that can happen. It can happen to anyone, even the, the biggest favourite like us. But it's the way that game went, which was incredible for neutral. But if you were French, it's hard to digest and hard to swallow, really, when you think about it being 3-1 up with 10 right. minutes to go. Also, it, it, it's Switzerland. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it is Switzerland. I mean, I think... It's the Golden Generation, but the last time they reached a quarterfinal of any big tournament was in 1954. So Golden yeah. Generation or not, this is not what they do, and that's why, of course, you're right. It's even harder to take because it was, you know, like like one of my children said this morning: it's embarrassing to lose against them, and I, and he's right, and in that manner, he's right, and and it's even more cruel to lose on penalties and have Kylian Mbappe missing the last penalty, of course. And
5: right. It
2: although was it was really it, hard. It was hard. Although it kind of felt like. That was in keeping with the kind of the storyline of the evening. I don't know when he stepped up and it was down to his kick, or at least that was match point. It kind of felt like, yeah, it would be entirely in keeping if he misses this. Uh, There was a lot of talk here that the scenes after he failed to convert were a clear sign of a rift between him and, and some members of the team. The fact that the rest of his teammates didn't come to console him. Uh, is is that? I, I do you know think who the said case? That,
6: but that's not true. That is not true. Not I, I, I true. I didn't watch the game. I saw Pogba. I saw Ding. I saw Sissoko coming towards him, and then he walked straight into the dressing room anyway. So it's all not right. the feeling
2: I had. Mbappé did at least get a uh, Pele sliding into his DM saying, "You know, you'll you'll be back." It's sort of step on the journey. I also like Le L- Monde, uh, who 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 essentially said that Mbappé has joined the likes of Platini, Zico. Baggio and Beckham in the list of great failed players in the penalty taking exercise. So, you know, you can still be a great and and blow the odd spot kick.
6: But I'll uh, tell you what, yeah. the people the people who criticize him for missing that pen are people who know nothing about football. You cannot criticize Kylian Kylian Mbappé, the most important player in that team to want to take the fifth penalty that can that can win you the tie and win you the game mm-hmm. could also mm-hmm. lose you the game as we saw. But this mm-hmm. is what leaders do. Regardless of his age, or regardless of what his name is or if he had a good game or not, if he had a good tournament before, I would have been far more disappointed if he had not wanting to take that fifth penalty. Than 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 him stepping up, going for it. It's not a great pen. It's not a bad pen either. It's a good save by Summer. Good for him. Mm-hmm. But I don't understand how people can slag him off for missing that pen when, one, as we said, a lot of great players, and there's other few that we didn't name, including Leo Messi, in that list, and and that you could blame it for him. That's not his fault if they lost, even if he missed that pen. It's, and, and I just find it hard, uh, weird, that, again, a lot of grown-up people who pretend that they know football are just ganging up on him because he missed that pen.
2: Okay. You did say, actually, on... Sunday night and Monday showed that if we once again took 45 minutes to get into a game, we could be in trouble. And so it proved. As for Deschamps, to have that squad, the World Championship winning squad, with the best striker in La Liga added, and then coming away with one win in four, it's not really a, a great look. But he did win you the World Cup, so I imagine his position is pretty untouchable for the moment.
6: Yes, he saved he's safe. Jimbo has got a contract until uh, December 2022 after the, the Qatar World Cup. Before the Euros, where the objective was semi-final, set by the the French uh, Federation, Uh, so they failed failed quite miserably. But the the idea was even to to already now extend his deal until after the Euros 2024. I think that might be delayed, certainly the the extension, but he, he won't go anywhere. He's... I like him in a way. I, I, was, I was so disappointed by what he did or certainly what he didn't do during this tournament because even if you take away this Switzerland the first 45 minutes against Switzerland, there was never really the togetherness that we saw in 2018. I think Deshaun took a lot for granted. Same with the players. There was not real direction. There was certainly no identity in what they did. Not even the identity that we saw in 2018, which, which was not always pretty, but at least you knew exactly what, what they would do, how they would do it. But this time that was not, that was not even there. But but on the other hand, I kind of like him and I think that in him, he's such a stubborn competitor that I would, I would want to believe that he's going to sit down and think, OK, I messed it up completely. Because he did. I mean, there was an answer he gave on French television the other day where he almost seemed to realise that some teams in this competition were setting up differently, whether they had the ball or not. And I'm like... Dude, what do you mean? You didn't know that you could have a formation when you have the ball to do stuff with the ball and and use the best quality of your players with that formation with the ball and then change it when you don't have the ball and you need to recover the ball and get the ball back and it's a different formation because you do different things. But he seemed to actually find out. And I'm like, so I, I don't know what happened to him. I really don't know. I would want to believe that he's going to bounce back and we want to do better and change a few things and go more towards what we saw in 2018 than what we saw in 2021. But only time will tell. But, I, yeah, I was so disappointed.
2: Julian Le And oh, By the way, the, uh, the team may have been united even in that defeat against Switzerland, but at least according to Radio Monte Carlo's sport, some of their families off the field are anything but. A great story on RMC Sport of their, of their mothers going at it in the stands during and after the Switzerland game. Principally, Veronique Rabiot, who, after the third goal for Switzerland, the equaliser, apparently asked Pogba's people how he could lose the ball like that. And then at the full-time whistle, had a go at Kylian Mbappe's father, telling him to tell his son not to be so arrogant. Adam?
5: Yeah, so, I mean, in the interest of balance and in defence of Veronique Rabiot, um... Who apparently she doesn't really appear to need much defending from other people. Um, she um, a- actually the Paul Pogba clan were reported as well to have to maybe have actually started the situation earlier in the game when they reacted negatively to Rabiot conceding the ball, um, and security officers apparently had to tell those close to Paul Pogba to calm down. So there may be two sides to um, Veronique Rabiot and uh, La Famille de Pogba um warming warming up and then boiling over as the game went on
3: my hope is that this ends in a kind of rebecca vardi style <laughs> investigation where it turns out veronique does the the match ratings for lakeep that would be the the ultimate <laughs> i think
2: magnificent she 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 might well be these days because she's no longer her son's agent after he famously fired her uh, after a prospective deal a prospective move from Paris Saint-Germain to Barcelona fell through in 2019 so uh, an interesting family anyway very shortly we'll be looking back on a classic 30th of June from a euro of yesteryear Uh, first though let's get some odds from Paddy Power and for that it's over to producer Ben
1: Thank you very much, Jimbo. I'm on the line with Jason Murphy from Paddy Power again. Jason, the quarterfinals lineup is secure. We're taking a couple of rest days. So let's look ahead to Friday night games. Uh, first up, it's Switzerland versus Spain. Two amazing last 16 ties. Can they repeat it? Will there be four or more goals when they meet?
7: Yeah, let's hope to do. Uh, we should all be recovered by now uh, for when these, uh, this game kicks off. For four or more goals, it's 13 to five for it to happen. In terms of the match prices, Spain to qualify is two to seven. Might sound a little bit shorter. It's the same price that went off against Croatia. But obviously, now, Luis Enrique knows his best front three. Sarabia, what a surprise in being in the squad, but he's definitely in the front three now with Torres and Murata. He knows he's midfield three. But what's he going to do with those centre backs? And that's the concern for this game, because if you look at what Fitch did to a very weak centre back pairing in the French game, We're going to see likewise whether it's Torres, whether it's Garcia at the back line in Spain. And that means that for this particular bet, if you're going with four more goals, Switzerland will definitely play their part in it and could chip in with a few. But look, if it's anything as good as Monday, then we're in for a real treat. And like I say, Spain probably just a little bit short based on what we've seen from Switzerland.
1: Okay, Italy v Belgium also taking place that night. Uh, probably won't be quite as entertaining. And uh, Belgium not looking in uh, the best shape after coming through Portugal. Um, can you give us some numbers on this one, please?
7: Yeah, we're waiting on team news the same as everyone else. We're waiting to see on Kevin De Bruyne what the situation is. Eden Hazard came off holding his leg. At the moment, Italy to qualify is 8-13 to and... If those two players aren't on the pitch, that price seems right to me. But if they're declared fit and on the pitch, then Italy would be too short if they hold that price. The player I'd be looking to, regardless of whether Hazard and De Bruyne are on the pitch, is Lukaku. He's 9-2 to two to score the first goal. The markets are essentially saying that when Belgium score a goal, it's Lukaku scores them 38% of the time. That's a massive contribution, but you can see it that he does it. People would have had concerns when he left the Premier League that maybe he was stepping down a level in Serie A, out of sight, out of mind. But people that are narrow tunnel vision just watching Premier League, they're seeing just how good Lukaku is now. He's just turned 28. He's in his peak. Like I said, 92 for the first goal here. But Italy at 8-13. If there's no De Bruyne or the older Hazard, that price is probably about right. But if, if they are fit then Italy going off eight certainly would be a little bit short but listen you don't always have to have a bet in the game I've watched enough of Burnley against Palace I've watched it 40 times I feel like in the last nine months we got some payback Monday let's hope we get some payback with these two quarterfinal games because this is the best of football that you'll ever get the Totally Football Show, sponsored by Paddy Power. Find a bookie who
0: loves you right back as much as Gareth loves right backs. Place a four plus fold bet builder on any football match and get money back as a free bet if one leg lets you down. Check paddypower.com for more details. Ten pound max free bet, TC supply, Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone?
1: On Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Smart Speaker and now ad-free on The Athletic, this is the Totally Football Show with James Richardson. Finally then, for today's uh, historic edition of Totally at the Euros, it's a bit of
2: on this day, Uh, this day being the 30th of June and the year in question being 1996. Crikey. And the venue was Wembley. And it was a happier occasion that time for Germany who achieved their last European Championship success it was against the Czech Republic and it featured the very first golden goal in the history of major international football from substitute Oliver Bierhoff. Bierhoff can sich durchsetzen, Kuba! And Deutschland ist Europameister!
6: And wieder was Oliver Bierhoff durch das erste Golden goal.
2: They think it's Oliver. Well, it is now, as the commentator surely should have said. Uh, Do you remember that game, Daniel?
3: Uh, I was 10 years old and I... Yes. uh, Something that I didn't do very often at that age, which was blankly refuse to watch it uh, as a stand at England losing to Germany on penalties, which I've not quite taken that sort of uh, vitriolic stance in, in slightly later life. But yeah, I was having absolutely none of it. The tournament was finished as far as I was concerned.
2: What depressing age were you at the time, Adam?
5: Um, this was June, so t- two under a bit.
2: OK, that's enough. Uh,
5: but, but, right. I, but I, I, so, you know, I, absor- I absorbed it all uh, from my cot. <laughs> um. <laughs> right.
2: OK, well, I, did, I was, you know, a fully grown man by this point, remarkably. and uh, <laughs> But also, I was a bit of a fan of Oliver Bierhoff, who at the time wasn't a big name, but, you know, subsequently... Went on to be one. He, he was a bit of a journeyman striker in Italy. He, he'd been playing for Ascoli in the second division where he wasn't very successful. Things used to happen to him like he would pull up at the traffic lights and fans would recognise him and slap him for not scoring more goals. Uh, but anyway, after that, he made a move to Udinese, who were always on the hunt for kind of unknown talent, and uh, and, and blossomed into this incredible goal-scoring machine after the Euros. This is 97-98. He got 27 goals in 34 matches in, in City as Udinese tore it up and went all the way to a UEFA Cup. But anyway...
5: That's why he became my favourite striker when I was three years old, um, Oliver is, is that right? Yes. It was the period at, um, at uh, Udinese that won me over. I was very disappointed with him as an 18-month-old at Ascoli, um, right, Slapping about, <laughs> um, but, by, but, but by three, hours fully into it.
2: Okay, well, I see you're joking with me. There you go. Bertie Vogts, by the way, that day, this day in 1996 at Wembley, became the only person to date to win the Euros as both a player and then as a manager. I think, of course, Didier Deschamps could have matched this year had things worked out better. Oliver Bierhoff is uh, national team director at the DFB. He's the man who will now be overseeing the handover from Yugi Love to, of course, Hansi Flick. Very good. Uh, That brings us to the end of today's Totally at the Euros. Uh, Tomorrow there won't be one because there are no matches, but we will be back, uh, well, for us on Friday night, straight after those two quarterfinals, and that show should be with you early Saturday morning. So I do hope you join us for that. Many thanks, listener, for being with us today. And uh, many thanks to you as well, Adam and Daniel, and to Rafa
1: earlier on. For now from all of us here, it's goodbye. You've been listening to the Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Listen ad-free on the Athletic app and discover bonus content by following the Athletic UK Audio Plus on Apple Podcasts. Keep up to date with everything Totally at the Totally Show on Twitter and find out the very latest subscription offers at theathletic.com/totally. The Totally Football Show is an Athletic Media Company production and sponsored by Patty Power. the Athletic.